0: Um, actually...
1: That's what we should have named this podcast.
0: Oh my God, is it too late?
1: <laughs> hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is June 23rd, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at Five Thirty Eight. Joining me from the opposite side of New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil.
0: Hey, Sarah, how are you?
1: Uh, great, I'm running out of ways to talk about where we are during this uh, during this lockdown.
0: Yeah, we really painted ourselves into a corner by making that a start to the show <laughs> tradition, and then I'm now we have run to with it. rip off. You of
2: know, it. I haven't been introduced yet, but um, <laughs> I'm just gonna butt in here and say that I I do want to fact check you on opposite side of the city. I, I'm not sure that's accurate. Uh, it, it's really really opposite end of the Central Park the central park how long have i been away from new york yeah
1: yeah what is that (laughs) anyway that other voice you hear there from the opposite side of the country is 538 contributor jeff foster hi Jeff.
2: and that that is accurate
0: um excuse (laughs) Um, me just the continental u.s you didn't take into account hawaii and alaska the mainland this is
1: why it uh is so much fun to work at 538 this this banter all the time
0: (laughs) um actually
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) That's what we should have named this podcast. Um, oh, my
0: God. Is it too late?
1: <laughs> yeah, Yeah,
0: let's rechange it. I mean, yeah. it's only been six years. Right. Ugh.
1: Um, Hey, there was horse racing. Real horse racing this weekend. The Triple oh, Crown yeah. started on Saturday. Oh,
2: yeah. Did you bet, Jeff? You, I did and lost. <laughs> oh. It was a tough race because it was a clear best horse, only good horse, class of the field, way better than the other horses. And a lot of that was due to... I think the two other big contenders, the Bob Baffert horses, were injured or something of that nature. So, New York Bread winning the Belmont Stakes, same connections as Funny Side, as everyone knows.
1: New York Bread, just like you. That's exciting.
2: Exactly. exactly. Mister. It's the Central Park. Oh, weird. <laughs> yeah. The you know the jockey probably celebrated in the Central Park. <laughs>
1: Um, there was soccer EPL this weekend, which was very fun, though um Arsenal lost twice, so in honor of Tony Chow, our uh, engineer, we shouldn't talk about it anymore, but I just wanted to mention it just to make sure that that was on the record that in fact, Arsenal did lose twice since we last talked. So well, Sarah, maybe that there.
0: We, maybe we can replace the where is where are Neil and Sarah in relation to each other at the top of the show with did Arsenal lose? <laughs>
1: I would be very on board with that. Um, just to be in full transparency, Tottenham also did not win, but they also didn't lose. So that's right. that's the key. to Okay. On today's show, we'll break down Major League Baseball's new plans to return, or at least the MLB owners' plans to return. The owners agreed unanimously to a 60-game season, and we'll discuss what that means, how the players may respond, and when we may actually see the sport come back. We'll also talk about the coronavirus. Remember the coronavirus? Many positive cases have been reported across sports, from golf to college football. So we'll get into how leagues are handling them and whether this is just what sports will look like for the next couple of years. Finally, we'll have a special guest break down hiring trends among NBA coaches in our rabbit hole of the week. At long last, baseball has finalized its plans to return kind of, mostly, on Monday night, Major League Baseball's owners voted unanimously to proceed with the 2020 MLB season. But this being baseball, the owners did this after the MLB Players Association voted down that same proposal earlier in the evening. The owners have now asked the players to inform management by 5 p.m. today whether they will report to spring or, I guess, summer training and whether they will agree to the health and safety protocol manual proposed by the league. This is a huge step forward for MLB, although everything is still up in the air and we won't know how the players will respond until around this time this podcast airs. But Jeff Passan broke down the likelihood of players actually going along with the league's proposal to Scott Van Pelt on ESPN's SportsCenter.
0: The answers, Scott, look like they're going to be okay. We will report on July 1st. And yes, we will codify the health and safety protocol. And I say this with the same caveat. That I have said month after month after (laughs) interminable month on this program, which is, this is all subject to falling apart because this is Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association that we're dealing with here. But the number of players with whom I spoke tonight had the same refrain. It's time. This is the deal. Let's get back and actually play.
1: So assuming this is all going to work, let's talk about how this is all going to work. Jeff, based on what we know right now, what are the particulars of this weird season? How long is it? What do the playoffs look like? Are there any weird rules in place?
2: Oh, there are many, Sarah. (laughs) But in terms of particulars, 60 games starting theoretically July 24th, around July 24th, uh, players will report to their home uh facilities uh in there, you know not in florida and arizona on july 1st uh 10 teams will make the playoffs and there will be a lot of strange sort of new rules um (laughs) particularly affecting extra innings roster size all sorts of things and then on top of that you have a number of uh policies that'll be in place for the player safety and the, and to uh, prevent COVID spread if possible. Um, but it should be interesting. It's definitely going to um, throw off the counting stats in a way we've never seen before, but uh, you know, I think it's, it's about it's, that could be a good thing from the stats perspective. We'll, we'll finally uh, maybe embrace some of these stats that are, are less about, you know piling up RBI numbers and home runs and we'll have to deal with these uh rate stats which is what we want right Neil this is a win
0: yeah I mean especially if if you get someone um hitting 400 in a shortened which will 60 probably happen season. I mean, it'll yeah, I mean happen. It, c- it definitely could happen you know we could see that and then trying to figure out the the hand wringing around like Is one asterisk enough to put on it? Maybe we should put two or three asterisks (laughs) on it. If someone hits a 400, it'll be like first player since Ted Williams, but it doesn't count. Not really.
2: Um, I mean, someone pointed out that if you look at the 60 game mark of last season, like Martin Perez was probably the Cy Young winner. So who knows? I mean, in terms of, you know, we've always heard about these players who start really slow. Well, you can't do that, you know. And I think the other thing, there's a lot of interesting things in terms of like the prospects, you know, the rosters will be bigger so that, you know, this this charade they do every year where they wait to bring up Vladimir Guerrero or whomever, um, they're just probably going to throw those guys into the fire, which will be interesting.
0: And also, I mean, the designated hitter. You know, I think there's still some confusion about whether it will be in place for both leagues, but I I saw some reports saying that it would be in place in 20, universal DH would be in place in 2020, though not in 2021, which is interesting, but it'll give us a chance to see how the National League will look when one out of every nine hitters is not a, you know, almost automatic out.
1: I gotta say the, the, the DH thing, it feels like a hollow victory for me. I believe in the universal DH. I wanted to win that argument on its merits and not just have it like slid in during a weird shortened season. So I'm glad to see it, but I'm kind of annoyed. Yeah. We all know
0: that that the tide is turning that way eventually like I don't think there's much doubt that eventually they're going to have universal DH in a full 162 game legitimate season.
2: (laughs) And maybe we should uh, implement designated fielders for guys who are bad at fielding and designated runners for guys who are slow. And then no one can really struggle at anything. And that's what we want, right?
1: Yes, that's that's an accurate uh, portrayal of this argument, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you you would prefer to see uh, would-be Cy Young winner Martin Perez hit instead of just be a mediocre pitcher? Cool.
2: It's not the time and the place for this argument, Sarah, but the answer <laughs> to your question is yes.
1: Yes, I would. Great. Okay, well, that's a bad argument, but we will come back to that later. <laughs> Um, so Neil, you've written before about the role randomness can play in just a, a regular 162 game season. Do you like this plan? Is is a 60 game season going to be just off the charts crazy?
0: Uh... Kind of, and yes, those are my, my <laughs> answers to the two questions, because, you know, on the one hand, it could have been worse. They had talked about sort of unilaterally implementing a 48-game season, and um, in terms of how much value each game has going into the season and telling us who the best teams are, there was a great story at The Athletic by Eno Saris uh, a few weeks ago, where he's basically looked at how much information we get from various lengths of the season. And one thing that he found was that we get the largest increase in correlation between teams to date winning percentage, so the winning percentage they have at that moment, and either the rest of season winning percentage or their eventual final end of season winning percentage in the first 60 games of the regular season, which I think is kind of interesting that that sort of syncs up, that we're getting sort of the, the most gains per game and information will be had in these 60 games that we're actually going to have. But we still learn at a pretty steady pace after game 60. It's just kind of a slower pace than in games one through 60. You can comp- do this for other sports too and make a comparison. So a 60 game major league season would be like an 11 game NBA season. The NBA, we've talked about this before, conveys like crazy amounts of information in a very short amount of Games, so ironically, the ele- an eleven game NBA season is not that different from the eight game kind of finale to the regular season that the NBA is actually going to put in place in Orlando, and it would be the equivalent of a ten game NFL season, a, a sixty game MLB season would. So by that standard, we're kind of getting, you know, it'd be like if you took the NFL and turned it into college football or something like that <laughs> where it's only a 10 game season but it that doesn't sound as bad as as maybe you know just looking at it as 60 games versus 162 games and and kind of comparing it as a percentage of the the total because again the the games after game 60 convey less information on a per game basis.
1: We did a story last week that looked at the difference where teams have been in the past at 50, 60 and 70 games in the MLB season and like the change in teams that then made the playoffs was much was big from 50 to 60 games. So this does seem I mean 70 games would have been better. But I do think there was there's a significant benefit from not just settling for that 48 game idea and and getting in the extra 12 games.
2: It, it the other sort of x factor here is that um, we don't know how this is going to affect strategy. You know, there's a lot of um, reasons to believe this will be, you know, more of a like a, a playoff or type strategy where you don't, you know, you don't have to worry about these inning limits or even, on some degree, maybe even pitch count limits for these pitchers. Um, you could see teams going to four-man rotations. You could mm. see the idea of the starter being used. You know, the I'm sorry, the opener. Right. <laughs> uh, being used more often. You could see the way teams deploy relievers be completely different. I mean, there's a lot of room, you know, without that sort of initial hurdle of having to play so many games and having to worry about so much wear and tear that, you know, is opportunity to innovate uh, if certain managers or, you know, teams are are keen to do so.
0: Yeah, it's basically like the stretch run starts on opening day, and everyone is tied. I right. mean, that's going to be very unlike anything we've, we've ever seen in baseball. And it could be one of the wildest pennant races ever. You know, I think uh, there's a good chance that a much better chance than usual that you have all the divisions in play on the last like week of the season than there would normally be. So that's sort of the the trade off that you get uh, with the increased randomness.
1: So, what about the playoffs? So, they, they scrapped the idea of expanding the playoffs um, and it's just going to be a 10 team playoff like normal. So, what, Neil, what does that mean with the, combined with the 60 game schedule?
0: Well, yeah. So, um, you know, I was looking up estimates of how often the best team wins under normal circumstances. And Bill James in the 80s, so before the wild card, before even, you know, the the division series, found that the best team won the World Series about 30% of the time. Then in their book Curveball, which was written in the early 2000s, I think Jim Albert and Jay Bennett found that the best team wins only about 20 to 25% of the time. And again, this is with a 162 game regular season. So we would expect those odds to to be substantially lower uh, in a 60-game schedule. And one of the things um, my colleague, Travis Sachik wrote about um, with, uh, when we were kind of speculating about the 16-team bracket is that, okay, so you do have this smaller regular season and a lot more variance, but with a 16-team bracket, at least it would improve the likelihood that the best team in baseball, or you know, the handful of best teams, and those have been very readily apparent in recent years because of tanking and and you know, certain teams loading up on talent and the Astros cheating. Uh, <laughs> uh, you would have the better chance of those best teams actually getting into the playoffs. So now, with the short season plus only 10 teams, like a regular playoff, the odds are much higher that a team like the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Astros or or one of these favored teams misses out on the playoffs because they have like kind of a cold 60 game stretch. We would actually be without teams that ended up making the world series uh, eventually over a 162 game schedule. If we just looked at the first uh, 60 games. And so I think that's one of the other reasons why, you know, whoever ends up winning the World Series this year is going to have maybe a, a less legitimacy in the minds of of serious fans than um, they would have otherwise.
1: Yeah, I I think that's really interesting because like the Nationals going into the playoffs last year, the Nats weren't. I mean, they were a wild card team. People weren't looking at them seriously as a contender. But once everything was said and done, it wasn't like anyone was like, oh, well, we don't really believe this outcome with we don't I don't accept the Washington Nationals as my World Series champ. Like nobody ever does that.
0: Well, it helped, though, with the Nationals that they that they had the best record in baseball, I think, from the you know 70 game mark on or something like that because they had to in order to make up for that crappy start.
1: Sure. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, yeah, that makes sense. I I do think though, the gauntlet of the playoffs, we, we typically just accept the outcomes of those series, even if maybe the Dodgers were better, but you know, we accept that the nationals won it. I do worry a little bit that if player, if teams go, get in that, like don't pass the sniff test as like a, one of the best teams in baseball. Yeah.
0: What if it's the Marlins? What if the Marlins <laughs> make the world series? Will we accept that?
1: Um. No, but that Marlins, would be an Orioles, interesting World Series. Yeah, that would be an interesting version of this already insane timeline if that ended up happening. So after all of this, what did this long labor standoff really accomplish? Like these same two sides, as we said before, will need to negotiate a new collective bargaining agreement next year after, I mean, the, it expires after the season, but they'll be negotiating all year. Jeff does the way this dispute played out have implications for subsequent discussions between the union and owners?
2: I think it's a, it's pretty bad foreshadowing. Yeah. I think what we're seeing here is two sides that do not like each other. There's accusations that they were negotiating with bad faith um, that, you know, being deceptive and, and this is just not a good place to start anything like negotiating a CBA. Obviously there's major disagreements in terms of how, the money is handled and how it is distributed, not unlike, you know, the mid-90s when we, we lost the season because of this. So I, I think it bodes poorly. There's clearly an acrimonious relationship between these sides. So, uh, you know, while they may get through this, this sort of strange aberration of a season, when they actually go back to the negotiating table, I, I, while there might not be like clear implications, I, it's clear that There's going to be a lot of disagreement. And I think it has to make everyone somewhat pessimistic about what's going to happen when they when they get to the after the 2021 season.
0: And it's such a missed opportunity this season, if you think about it, because a it sort of casts baseball in this terrible PR light that while people are dying of this um, disease and also against the backdrop of, you know, protests about people wanting just basic rights, you know, uh, for themselves that baseball players and owners are squabbling about, you know, ultimately the difference between what 10 games worth of salaries at, at full pro rata um it 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 makes them look really petty they miss the chance to have this kind of grand reopening on july 4th and the symbolic value of that and having the stage to themselves for a longer period of time because now they're gonna you know like you said they will be the first sport back but at the same time they're pretty quickly gonna have to contend with the nba playoffs the nfl uh barring some kind of horrible second wave that shuts down all sports again. And so I think it was a missed opportunity for baseball to kind of have that goodwill. And we've said it before that this is a sport that, you know, is is kind of losing popularity among younger fans. And uh, this is just another reason why in a competitive landscape where they could do a lot of different things, they could watch other sports. They could also watch people play video games on Twitch. They could do (laughs) they, they There are so many options out there now why should you know uh as many people care about baseball if the the owners and and maybe to a lesser extent the players uh care so little about making the games actually happen um and and you know putting on a show for the fans
1: i do think though that baseball is was always going to be really hurt by not having fans at the games baseball i think more than the other sports um Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel really conflicted about this fight because I don't think that the players should have just given in to what the owners wanted. It seems pretty clear to me that the owners were trying to get away with not actually facing any losses during this unprecedented time and putting that all on the players. And even with this, they are going to make money off of this. And they're probably going to make just about the same amount that they played before as long as the playoffs are played. Um, And I think this is... More of a case where we should be able to see owners books. If they're going to have this antitrust exemption, they're going to operate as a monopoly. We should get to to know for sure what they're actually making. I'm more convinced Preach. of that than ever. Yep. I know. There's my little um, soapbox on MLB owners. <laughs> Um, All right. So assuming that we this comes together, the owner or the players don't go on strike or something, um, which if they do today, I guess we'll need an emergency podcast for that. Um, So hopefully we won't have that. Um, Assuming everything does happen. We do have a season. What are you guys looking forward to the most about actual baseball being played?
0: I'm excited to watch probably my favorite player, Mookie Betts, play for the Dodgers. You know, we got to see a few games uh, with him in uh, Dodger blue in the spring before everything shut down. Um, but yeah, I'm just excited to see him play. And and that whole team is just so stacked already that I think this is going to be their best chance for a franchise that, you know, has come close uh, a few times over the years and also lost to teams that were later found to have um, bent the rules. We'll say uh, that, you know, it could be a great story to see them sort of, you know, storm through and actually finish the job this time.
2: You know, some of these—we uh, sort of, Mookie Betts, obviously being the big one. Uh, some of these other uh, moves are, are interesting. I think having Rendon batting in front, presumably in front, maybe behind—I don't know how they're going to do it. Uh, uh, Mike Trout on the Angels is fascinating. Otani is going to be back, and I guess pitching now that, that we're halfway through the season. Or in theory, <laughs> he's on schedule to to be the return of the the two-way Phenom that we were all enjoying before it, it went sour. So that's exciting.
1: I am just excited to get back to arguing about cheating. I'm so excited for that. All I want to do, I want to stop talking about (laughs) player salaries and how many games, and I want to litigate whether the Yankees were actually bigger cheaters than the Astros. That's all I want to do this season.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: we really haven't talked about that that blockbuster bombshell report that came out a few weeks ago uh, with the Yankees, you know, potentially serious cheating allegations, Mm -hmm. an unsealed letter from Rob Manfred or whatever it was.
1: yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. When all of this dies down, when all of the, will we have baseball argument dies down, we're going to get back to this. The Yankees are not off the hook. I am going to argue about this quite a bit and I'm excited about that. All right. I think we can leave that here for now. Let's take a quick break to hear from this week's sponsor, Allbirds. One thing these last few weeks have made clear is that we all need to be doing our part to look out for each other and the world. That's why Allbirds is on a mission to leave the planet in better shape than they found it. Allbirds is a B corporation, making the environment a stakeholder in the business. They know we can create a more sustainable future, but only if we hold ourselves accountable, which is why they print each shoe's carbon footprint right on the sole so you know its impact on the planet. If you'd like to be part of making the world healthier while also getting in shape yourself, Allbirds has a brand new performance running shoe, the Tree Dasher. The Dasher is the first shoe of its kind, a truly sustainable running shoe made from natural materials that delivers high-level running performance. My pair of Dasher's are a fun orange, and they're super light and comfy. It's a great shoe that will support you, whether you're training for a long run or just looking to get a walk-in before going back to being inside all the time. (laughs) With the new Allbirds Tree Dasher, feel confident knowing that you can run hard and tread lightly on the planet. Find your pair at Allbirds.com today. That's A L L B I R D S dot com. Some sports are back while others are gearing up to come back. But the coronavirus hasn't gone anywhere, and now reports of athletes testing positive for COVID 19 are rolling in. Over a 24 hour period, the National Football League, National Hockey League, Major League Soccer, National Women's Soccer League and Major League Baseball all confirmed positive tests. And college football teams like Clemson and LSU have quarantined more than 20 athletes on their squads prior to the start of voluntary workouts. There continues to be disquiet among NBA players about traveling to Orlando when cases are spiking right now in Florida, as Brian Windhorst broke down on ESPN's SportsCenter.
3: There are players who are concerned about the virus absolutely in general and the situation developing in the Orlando area. There are players who want to remain focused on the Black Lives Matter movement that is right now, uh, for, for so many of them, the central focus of their lives. There are players who are concerned about injury, especially free agents who potentially don't want to get hurt before going into a big free agency. And there are players who are overseas who may not want to come back into the U.S. in the current situation right now. Um, All overseas players were supposed to be back by June 15th, but Hannah, they did not all come back. How many will make it back? We'll see. Having said all of that, let me tell you, this, from what everybody that I talk to right now, is too big to fail. The overwhelming majority of players are excited. They want to be there. They know that there's going to be positive tests as they start entering the bubble with their teams uh, in the next few days. Can I say that that's going to be the case next Sunday when we talk? No, I cannot. But right now, this is too big to fail.
1: So let's start with this idea that the NBA and other major sports leagues are too big to fail, that they're going to come back regardless of what happens with positive cases. Jeff, do you you think that's true? and, And I guess, should we be okay with it?
2: Well, they're two very different questions. I, I, to the second part of the question, should we be okay with it? No, probably not. It, it seems very wrong. Um, but I do sort of agree. And I think we're seeing that to a certain extent with MLB, you know, kind of forcing the issue and, and coming back regardless of, of all these obvious glaring red lights to their uh, progress towards getting back on the field. Um is that they there is a so much money involved that it does feel inevitable. I mean, uh, the NBA, uh, you know, take them separately. I, I think the NFL certainly that feels too big to too big to fail. Like there there will be NFL football. I think that that will be issue will be forced regardless of what's going on with the pandemic. I think the NBA in their particular case with having it their season or their bubble season in Florida, which is honestly, one of the worst places right now in terms of COVID um, is problematic. But that doesn't mean, you know, I think everything is lost on that front. Maybe they, I don't know, maybe they pivot. It feels a little late for that at that point. Um, But I do sort of see that. I I actually think it is the other team sports, um, particularly, frankly, the the college sports that are probably most in jeopardy because I I think – there's just other complications there, particularly with amateur athletes and a way larger number of athletes involved. And seeing these uh, these test results among LSU and Clemson and and other schools already, when campuses aren't even open and and there's no one there and they're still having these outbreaks, what was it, thirty LSU players? Um, it's very troubling. And 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 frankly, you look at you know the states. It, where, you know, South Carolina, Texas, you know, Kansas State had issues. They're clearly, the, a lot of this comes down to each state's um, stage of opening and whether that's the right stage to be in, because we notice that states don't really follow the, you know, technical protocol for when you should be opening. Um, it's more of a just a guideline. So I think because you have so much college football in these Sunbelt states and southern states that are really getting hit hard right now. It's very troubling.
0: There, there is no ambiguity over the fact that players are going to test positive. In fact, I think it was Adrian Woznarowski reported yesterday that, I mean, the NBA is fully expecting many players to test positive, you know, once they kind of get things going and especially test on like a multi times a day basis and that's the nba that's the smallest number of players um of any sport when we're talking about football fbs has 130 teams and the college football roster size is 105 uh players so if you just do the math on that that's Almost fourteen thousand players that we're talking about, and so if you have an infection rate of zero point eight percent for them, that's a hundred and nine players that are sort of starting training camps or you know coming to to the um, team setting with the infection, and then it can kind of spread from there. So I, I think that college, because it is less, you know, rigidly. uh you know, managed than the NBA, certainly. uh, And they don't seem to have a bubble plan in place. And then on top of that, there's so many more players and so many more teams that it seems almost inevitable that you're going to have huge outbreaks and a substantial number of college football players are going to end up testing positive. And maybe the only saving grace is we know that this thing affects young people a lot differently than it does older people, and not in a linear way. I mean, it's like the odds of death for players in the profile, you know, people in the profile of college football players who are healthy. Presumably, most do not have preexisting conditions or comorbidities or anything like that. Uh, and, and so they're young and healthy, you know, has ha- they have a much lower chance of having a serious infection uh, or potentially fatal one to be, you know, totally callous about this than, you know, somebody who's 65 and has diabetes or something like that.
1: Well, and we're talking too about, I mean, yes, I think you're right. We assume that athletes are in much better shape than average people and would would survive an illness. And so maybe that's an acceptable risk. The athletes are not the only people involved. I mean, there's been this, a little bit of, um, of back and forth about coaches and whether some coaches who are older should not be allowed to be in the bubble. And I mean, they've, you know, there's a fight about that, about, well, then is that like, you know, age discrimination that would hurt, older coaches ability to get another job. There's that wrinkle too. I say,
0: wheel them out on a TV screen and have them, you know, just sort of sit on the bench and talk to the players through like a camera and be Mm -hmm. like a robo coach.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I like it. But also,
2: Um, you know, it's not just the players. I mean, uh, we can't, you know, uh, lose the, uh, the forest for the trees here. I mean, these players, you know, how many college football players, Live with their grandparents, and they're also kids. You know, they're they're college kids, and as we've seen over and over again, they're they're not the the greatest uh, subsection of the population <laughs> at, at
1: at making good choices.
2: And a lot of that is fueled by this invincibility thing,
1: right? Even for fully formed adult athletes um, involved right now, you know the um, the NWSL is supposed to start its tournament this weekend. And one whole team, the Orlando Pride, had had has had to pull out of that tournament because some players on the team went out to a bar in Orlando where it was open. That was legal. That was, you know, okay to do, according to the state. And they all got sick. And so now the whole team had to pull out of the tournament because of that. And that was in like these are adults making decisions that are state sanctioned (laughs) and they still like it, it all went to hell. So then when you're talking about the college environment where it is much easier to do much stupider things and I mean, and you're in close contact with so many people, I mean, this is okay. So this is what I wanted to talk about. Football is the worst for this, right?
2: Particularly college football, but yes.
1: But even in the NFL, if you're an offensive lineman, like, do you really want to do your job, I mean, you're you you are right up in someone's grill, right? Like you are in their face. There's no mask. There's no protection there. How does that work?
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we look at the, the MLBs taking temperature checks, what twice daily or, or even more. So I, I do think there will be these precautions that will make sure no one is in theory. Then again, the tests are not completely reliable either and and there's a lot we don't even know about right. this d- disease
0: and you
1: can spread it without symptoms so right. by the time that you have to it. have
2: yeah. a
0: temperature it might already be too late the thing i don't understand is you know they're not even mandating this for hockey much less football but hockey you know at lower levels than you know the nhl mandates full face shields that are kind of clear plastic that you think you could also double as, you know, at least some kind of protection to, to block outgoing breath or anything like that. But I don't know if there's been any movement in terms of helmets or face masks or anything like that, that are designed to kind of allow you to still get some oxygen. Obviously, that's important. But then, you know, block the the outflow of, um, uh, of your breath, your heavily breathing, you know, yeah. all of this stuff.
1: I just I feel like we've spent all this time talking about these leagues, you know, the NBA, I mean, obviously players are close together in the NBA, but they're doing this, they're they're really doing the work to try to make a bubble for their players. I'm not sure it will be successful, but they're doing that work. I don't feel like we've done any work yet about football for college or the NFL. And it's just like, you know, pushing ahead, hoping again, just hoping that the virus goes away by the time they play. And that doesn't seem like like a great idea right now. If
0: anything, it seems like it might become more of a problem as we sort of move out of the summer and into football season that uh, everyone is kind of bracing themselves for the potential of the true second wave, not what we're having right now. This is still the first wave. We haven't dealt with the first wave yet uh but then you know if there is a second wave as the temperatures go down and and the virus is able to kind of pers- uh persist on surfaces longer and you know become more transmissible uh and then you got the flu on top of that it's going to be a disaster i think
1: it does certainly seem like it could be um i mean so the sports that have that have come back already golf soccer um racing tennis to a certain extent jeff how have those leagues or events handled safety protocols so far.
2: Well, golf, interestingly, uh, obviously had a uh, their first positive test with Nick Watney had to withdraw from this tournament uh, for testing positive, um, which is clearly a bad sign. Uh, you could also argue it it kind of shows what advantage golf has um, mm-hmm. compared to the other sports with guys playing alone, not near many other people um outside which is a huge factor in the spread of this um but look at how what happened with Watney he flew to this tournament um in South Carolina from the last tournament in Texas uh, on Sergio Garcia's private jet (laughs) so uh while it's bad for Nick Watney um obviously it, it does sort of show that this the this super spreader idea it doesn't really apply to golf because it's just not going to happen. These guys are, are coming from their own means to get to these tournaments and they're staying away from each other. Um, but that being said, every person's different. A lot of this goes down to like what you're doing personally and you in the time when you're not on camera playing the sport you're getting paid to play. Um what sort of uh, social distancing practices you're you're doing. So there obviously always are going to be aberrations.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think golf has been fairly successful, even though it's had that one test, but only one test. Tennis is interesting because tennis is actually like in terms of sports, you can play tennis is supposed to be the safest when it comes to COVID. And now we have at least three players who tested positive after this, um, the Adria tour in Serbia and Croatia. This is Novak Djokovic, his tour. And he today, and now it's been announced that he tested positive. Um, and there were no masks. There was no social distancing. So it's like the sport part was probably fine. It was the stuff around the sport. Yeah. Which is exactly
2: exactly my point. Yeah. And yeah, they were very cavalier about it. And, and yeah. look what happened. But that's a great point that, you know,
0: the, if if there is an outbreak among a particular sport or whatever, with maybe the exception of those linemen down in the trenches where you can't socially distance uh, down there, that, uh, you know, the odds are that if an infection happens, it happened not during the actual gameplay itself for... All of the reasons that you guys mentioned, whether it's outdoors or you know just the fact that the the contact between people is so fleeting, even if there is you know a lack of, a brief lack of social distancing, and there's been a lot of research that basically the things that determine the the uh, potential spread of the virus are proximity to someone, but also time spent in proximity with someone and also airflow, basically, or are you outdoors versus are you indoors? And, you know, the NBA, of course, is going to be indoors. So they failed that, you know, check, don't check off that box. But at the same time, it does seem like any interactions that happen, you know, in the course of playing the game are going to be brief as LeBron blows past someone to, to dunk or, or whatever. <laughs> you know, no one's playing that hard defense for that sustained amount of time that, you know, it does seem like it's much more likely to happen on the on the plane, you know, uh, for the college players on the team bus. I mean, you know, you have just a bunch of players in a confined space, uh, the same players uh, for a long period of time. That's sort of a recipe for spreading this because that violates all of the protocols that we know about how this thing spreads. It's very rare for it to be spread outdoors. I mean, that's the the yeah. saving grace of some of these outdoor sports.
1: I did. I thought it was interesting that one of the MLB protocols is no postgame showers, which I was like, wait, what those showers, but you got to think the locker room locker rooms are gross under the best of circumstances. And that, you know, it does kind of make sense that a locker room would be considered a place that that might be a, a place where it spreads and so to limit your time spent there does seem to make the most sense
2: it actually says post post game showers are discouraged
1: oh <laughs> <laughs> go home smelly people just just suck it up for the greater good i mean
2: if you really have to shower but look, <laughs> it's frowned upon we don't like showering.
1: Yeah, hit the showers now is going to mean a whole different thing I guess.
2: Yeah, but I, I do think the concern more for the big team sports particularly football, it is the teammates a teammate rather than um getting it well in some scrum for a uh for a loose fumble, where you're uh, all on top of the other team, which which to me sounds horrifying. That sounds like the <laughs> the, the least possible social distancing you can do is a is a fumble right. scrum,
0: and the other thing is the differences between how the leagues seem to be kind of handling the sites of the games where it does seem like the infectious disease experts like Dr. Anthony Fauci and some others have kind of commended the NBA and the NHL on the fact that they have these like hub, you know, cities or whatever one, one particular location in the case of the NBA where you can kind of manage everything a lot more tightly. Whereas the other sports are just sort of, they're crisscrossing the country. They're playing at their home, uh, parks and and stadiums. And I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't know if we have like a fully great sense of how much more risk that adds uh, to the process. But it does seem like that is also kind of against the advice of of the people that are trying to form plans for the country as a whole.
1: Right. I mean, I do think this is really this just shows where where we're at as a country. We I think everyone, when sports shut down, I feel like everyone was like, yes, this is what we have to do to get past this virus. The problem is we didn't get past the virus, but people want the sports back. And so grappling with that, I think it's just going to be really hard over the next several months. We want to believe, I mean, we want things to return to normal. We all want that. But, but if we didn't create the conditions where people are safe and things can actually return to normal this is going to be really hard. And there are going to be these reports of, of people getting sick all the time that either we as a society will just have to get used to and accept, or we're going to have to grapple with it and try to fix it. And I'm afraid that it's going to be the former and we're just going to be like, okay, that's fine, go get sick, instead of really, really fixing this and ending this pandemic and instead just kind of ride it out, which I don't know. Doesn't seem great. Doesn't seem yeah.
0: Safe. The cynical "get off my lawn" whatever critic in me wants to just be like, this is kind of typical of America, right? You know, we want the instant gratification of having the fun sports back and and having done literally zero of the work to make that you know viable, but we don't care. We just want you know. It's it's so symbolic of of so many other things that are happening that are larger than than sports, much larger than them. But it is kind of a microcosm of what we're facing. We want the benefits and wanted to do none of the work.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I think we can leave that here for now. Obviously, we'll be talking about this a lot more as sports do get going again over the next couple of months. We will be back in a moment with our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these dissents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, we're so happy to welcome back to the show, 538 copy editor Santul Nurker. Hi, Santul, how are you? Hey, I'm
4: doing well. How are you, Sarah?
1: I am fantastic. So, we've talked a fair amount on the show about the NFL's issues with hiring minority coaches. But, Santul, you wrote a great story that's up on the site right now about the NBA's hiring of minority coaches. I had sort of had it in my head that the NBA had a huge share of black coaches, but that's not really true anymore, is it?
4: Right. So obviously the NBA has the reputation as this really socially minded and progressive league, and especially when you compare it to the NFL and to some extent baseball. Um, and under their new commissioner, newish, Adam Silver, they've really built on that, on that reputation, uh, you would say. But actually over the last five years, the numbers of black coaches in a league that's over three quarters black in terms of player representation has gone down. And so it was down from the start of 2015 to 2016, uh, from eight to seven. And that's down from a high of 14 that was in 2012. So in a way it's actually gone back, uh, since the start of Adam Silver's tenure, which is a little bit surprising. And some people have pointed to, uh, certain black coaches not doing as well and then being hired, uh, fired in really quick succession. sort of the NBA's turned to analytics and more non-traditional uh, sources for their coaching pipeline, but it's really, it's really difficult to point to one issue, but it's, it certainly is surprising is what I would say. I think that's the overall takeaway.
1: Yeah. I was shocked to, to learn that. So When you talk about like um, the different kinds of coaches that are being hired now, the more like analytical approach and stuff. What what do you mean by that exactly? What are some examples of that?
4: Right. So NBA coaches now are more likely to be first-time pro coaches from, let's say, the college ranks. So after a brief stint in college, uh, they're more likely to be former scouts. Maybe they've interned with the organization, and they're less likely to be players. That's the main thing. And so. Over the years, most black coaches have been players, and that's how they've established their connections in the league. So in the post-playing career, they have the option to, be, to, to become a coach, to become a head coach, whereas white coaches m- way more often are hired from the broadcast booth, as from being scouts, from being assistant coaches. And this definitely translates to, into, the, into uh, the general manager arena too. And so as a result of hiring away from the traditional player to coach pipeline, you're probably making it harder for black coaches to make inroads in the leagues. And that's despite the fact that in recent years, there have been uh, NBA hit coaches who have not had uh, NBA playing experience uh, who are black. Take like J.B. Bickerstaff, Lloyd Pierce of Atlanta, uh, Alvin Gentry, even though he's more established, Dwayne Casey. Uh, also more established. So there is some hope and some evidence that there is uh growing acceptance of black coaches who are not former NBA players, but over the long term it's a little bit more uncertain and murky.
0: Now, is this a situation, Santul, where I know when um Perry Bacon and I looked at this for it the NFL coaching pipeline, we found that almost like a playing career was something that was sort of held against uh uh, players that wanted to become coaches in the sense that you had to get started earlier and earlier on this coaching path. Uh, and that was obviously a lot easier if you're sort of a white assistant that comes in fresh out of college and kind of starts climbing that ladder. Whereas if you're a player, especially a successful one, you don't really start down that coaching path until you're in your, you know, mid thirties, if you're a good player and stuck around in the league a long time. And so you it's almost like by being a better player, you're, uh, you have a a kind of disadvantage along the coaching path. Is that something that you found for the NBA as well?
4: So I didn't find that. I do take your point that sort of implicitly being a player is becoming more devalued, much like I think more explicitly in the NFL, it has been devalued for a very long time. So in the NBA, if you start to look towards more analytical, um, non-unorthodox uh, pipelines for for coaches, then you're actually going to be drawn away from the player-to-coach pipeline. And then there's also the larger issue. Uh, Mike Wolbaum wrote this story for The Undefeated a while ago about how the, quote-unquote, analytics revolution has left uh, uh, black coaches behind. And so there's this perception um, among many in NBA front offices likely that like I think as an implicit racial bias that black coaches are more players coaches. They're less analytically minded, which I I think obviously
0: is wrong. Do you think maybe this is also something that might change with time where we sort of see this current crop of players that have seen more success because they play in a more analytically friendly style? Like I'm thinking James Harden is the canonical example, but some of these guys that play uh, almost surely consciously in a way that plays toward you know the numbers and maximizing percentages that when those guys that generation becomes old enough to retire and then potentially go into coaching do you think that that might lead to more more blackhead coaches and that we're in sort of a transitional period now where those guys aren't old enough to necessarily be retired and start coaching yet
4: that's a really good question i have no idea to be honest with you um i think even the analytics revolution was not there until like the last six, seven years. So it's really hard to project out what it'll be a few years from now. I do think, though, that... I don't think the analytic, uh, the analytics revolution is solely to blame for this, but I do think if you're only hiring through that pipeline, you're going to leave uh, black coaches behind, especially, like, to analogously in the last 10, 15, like 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't... Um, a focus for players to play that way. So, in a league that's always been predominantly black, obviously you're seeing the effects of that now. But to your point, in ten, fifteen, twenty years, maybe somebody like James Harden, maybe somebody like Steph Curry, will be seen as more, you know, uh, forward-minded, whatever that means. But I think that it's a, it's a little bit difficult to wait for that, and I think you have to kind of uh, emphasize hiring former players, as you sort of allude to in your art in your article with Perry.
0: Yeah. And maybe by then, I mean, the goalposts might move by then and they'll say, oh, you know, now you have to have this level of analytics (laughs) expertise. Or maybe it's like, oh, we don't want analytics minded players anymore. You know, and it's sort of like, what do we have to do? Absolutely.
1: It, It does still seem like, you know, just as in the other sports, who is calling the shots in the leagues matters too. the NBA has nine black GMs, which is uh, more than the NFL for sure, but still, you know, still a, a small share of overall GMs. Um, nine black GMs and eight. Black coaches right now, including um, interim coaches, which is sort of interesting. And also, as you say in your article, Santu, only, not, only four of those nine black GMs have the final say in basketball related decisions. So what kind of effect does that have?
4: This has been uh, a primary concern by players. So most recently, Kyrie Irving and Avery Bradley have sort of arranged this players coalition, arguing for uh, greater attention to racial injustice, and also fixing critically the NBA's hiring problems and its racial hiring problems, and that starts at the GM level. So, if you have fewer uh, black voices in the in the decision room, like when you're actually making these uh, these calls, obviously uh, black voices are not going to be uh, as as big of the overall decision making apparatus, and so it, it sort of trickles down. And I think, like to your point. This has been something that's changed in the last few years. Going back from 2015, 2016, it does seem like black GMs are being hired at a, at a higher rate. So maybe this is something that will take longer to see its effects, finally. I think you can't fully evaluate the effects of this for a few years. But I do think that it's important that NBA players have seen this disparity and are trying to address it. But there's no question that it does start from the GM level.
1: Yeah, I thought it was interesting that that was one of the the things brought up by that coalition of players who's not doesn't necessarily want to to restart the league. And that like, you know, we've talked about that a lot and how how this is a moment for players to take that spotlight for lots of things, for racial injustice in lots of ways. So it was interesting to see them say, hey, what's going on in our league right now? We want that to change as well.
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that there has been a lot of hand-wringing about how if you don't play, you lose your platform. But frankly, like a lot of the points that have been made about racial injustice and a lot of the attention that uh, stars, whether it's LeBron James, Steph Curry, have gotten for, uh, I think, highlighting police brutality, uh, racial inequities in the United States those have happened while they've all been off the court. So it's, it seems a little bit strange that uh, there's been this argument that if they take the court, again, they'll be, if they don't take the court, they'll be losing that platform when they've had the platform without the court. So I think that's interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think maybe, maybe, you know, we don't understand that like the platforms exist now. I mean, social media, it's a thing. People have platforms already. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. It is sort of funny that we sort of forget that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Central. This is really interesting. And um, listeners can go read this article and and learn more about how the NBA coaching pipeline is working right now.
4: Great. Thank you so much.
1: That will do it for this week's show. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you'd like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Santoul, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.